Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. Hi everyone, Ben here. Just a quick content warning on this one, our discussion in this episode is about sexual assault and the nature of consent, primarily in gay male spaces, and we get into that in both general and specific terms. Just be aware of that going in, and maybe give this episode a miss if you think the subject matter might not be for you. Otherwise, stick around, I think our conversation goes to some interesting places. Okay, back to the episode. It's the 21st of March 2018, I'm Simon Copland. And I'm Benjamin Riley. Welcome to Queers. Each episode we talk our way through questions on a theme, and this week we're talking about the hashtag MeToo movement and consent in gay communities. Before we get into the discussion, I just wanted to talk briefly about something that I've been uh, doing recently. It's um, a, a reading group that I've launched in Sydney called Unimaginatively Queer Reading Group Sydney, Um Sorry, I'm just, as we talk, I'm- Tells you what it is. We're we're recording, like, earlier in the morning than we usually record, and I'm just staring into Simon's face on Skype, and he has, like, the most, like, sleepy morning eyes. I'm sorry, Simon, to reveal this on the podcast. It's just- It's okay, it's okay. Um, Mornings are not my thing. (laughs) I see, I woke up, I'm, like, an aspirational morning person. Oh, me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm always, like, I'll set the alarm early, and then I sleep in. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yes, so, I'm doing this queer reading group, Sydney. It's- like a book club, except we don't read books because that's, you know, book clubs fall apart because no one reads the book. So, these are like short, queer texts. It's it's open to anyone. The best way to find out more about it if you're in Sydney and interested in coming along is to go... Uh, oh, we, can post a, we can post something about it on the Facebook page and... It also has a Facebook group if you search Queer Reading Group Sydney and just request to join that. Uh, that's a place for kind of discussion and things. The first We had the first meeting last week and the text we read was uh, one that I really, really love called What Is This Gay Community Shit by uh, the late uh, queer Australian writer Sasha Soldatov. And uh, it was super interesting to discuss the text with a bunch of queers in Sydney who just happened to kind of come along to this thing. Most of us didn't know each other. 
uh, and and it'll be happening on the third Thursday of every month at Better Red Than Dead Bookshop in Newtown. So come along if it sounds like something you would be interested in. Oh, it sounds like fun. I wish I could come along if I was in. Sydney. Well, you'll have to then you'll have to make a special be... trip next time, Sunday. Yeah, I'll make a special trip, but you know, I don't think like moving to Sydney is probably not in my horizon. But you know, make a special trip for once. P.S. You would absolutely love this text. It's like by a like a queer anarchist kind of talking about kind of the commercialization of the gay community, but in like 1983. That sounds pretty so fantastic. Absolutely worth a read. All right. All right. I'll add it to my reading list on my, my big pile of papers that I have. Well, this one's really fun and it's really short. So that's, that's a plus and and it's not difficult, you know? So uh, I would also recommend you can find it online. If anyone wants to just um, Google that Uh, you should be able to find it pretty easily. What is this gay community shit? Um, very good, very good text. All right, excellent. I'm glad the um, first session went really well. The last year has been dominated by the powerful Me Too movement, in which women around the world have spoken out about and challenged cultures and systems of sexual harassment. This movement is making some take a hard look at sexual practices within queer communities, and in particular in gay male spaces. Some are asking, are queer people immune from these cultures of sexual harassment? In an article for the website Them late last year, the writer Philip Henry argued that gay men, quote, normalise sexual assault, with the practice especially common in hypersexualized venues such as gay bars and sex-on-premises venues. Henry argues, quote, The gay community has made sexual assault an appealing and casual art form. Gay culture doesn't just tolerate sexual assaults, it encourages them, particularly in gay bars. It's a pervasive problem that we need to take responsibility for, end quote. So today we want to take a look at the hashtag MeToo movement in the context of queer communities. Do we have a culture of sexual assault? And if so, where does it come from and what can we do about it? So Ben, uh, let's just start off. Uh, Do you think that gay men, uh, quote, normalise sexual assault in the way that Philip Henry argues? (sighs) This is such a, this is such a challenging topic to talk about and obviously all of the kind of caveats up front about not wanting to, you know, wherever the discussion ends up going, not obviously not wanting to minimize anyone's experience, wanting to be very, you know, unambiguously condemning, I suppose, of, of sexual assault, you know, as it occurs. Um, But it is such a, I think it's, it's interesting. I think it's a more challenging and complex topic than the article that we're discussing kind of gives it credit for. Yeah, there's, I agree. There's a, a, this sort of strange moment in there. And, you know, and we, we, this, we really just want to use this as a bit of a, a springboard into a broader discussion. I, d- I don't want to... I think it's really great that he's written this and it is a, an important conversation to be happening in... To be having in... in particularly about particularly about gay male spaces but i think i was just frustrated that it didn't the answers it provided to me were deeply kind of unsatisfying um there's this moment in the article where he he talks about how i'll I'll actually just quote from it because i I think that probably make the most sense so he he talks about how he he just sort of describes the environment of a gay bar in which people are really kind of you know, potentially gym buffed and want people to kind of look at them and potentially objectify them. And, you know, that that's a really kind of charged and sexual space. And he says, quote, 
In a culture that puts such high value on physical appearance, it becomes hard to negotiate what kind of attention is and isn't welcomed, but it shouldn't be, end quote. And to me, that kind of like sums up my frustrations with it, that it's like he sort of spends the first half of the article going, this is a really complex problem. These spaces are very sexually charged. What is and isn't okay is often really, really hard to tell. What people do and don't want, even from their own subjective experience, is often really, really hard to determine. But it shouldn't be this complicated. And then he goes on to say, like, XYZ behavior is not okay. And I I just kind of think... It's just frustrating to kind of have him go, this is really complex, but it shouldn't be complex. And it's like, well, I mean, it is. Like, you've just said that it is. I think... I guess to go back to the question, I th- definitely think that gay men normalize a kind of sexual relatedness way of kind of socializing in a space that is very sexual and a way of engaging with each other sexually that is much more charged and much more heightened than probably most other social spaces, if yep. not almost all other social spaces. I mean, you know, I can't... Obviously, I haven't been in all kind of subcultures, social spaces, but it certainly seems that way to me. And in a space like that, these behaviour that would seem really clearly like sexual assault in another context might be difficult to recognise in a space like this. So, I think... I think that that's certainly true. Do we normalize sexual assault? I think that's a more difficult. I. It's a more difficult. That's a more difficult proposition to for me to just agree with wholeheartedly because the the nature of. uh, uh, This is where things get really tricky. Yeah, I think I think think there's the difference between. I'm sorry to interrupt there, but no, no, no. The difference between acknowledging that sexual assault happens in gay communities, which I think is undoubtedly true. Uh, and I think that pointing that out is not a um, is not a controversial thing. I don't think it should be a controversial thing. I have seen what I would consider sexual assault happen in gay male spaces. Um, I've seen it happen in sex on premise venues, uh, which you know is sort of one area where you sort of would think you know, you know, where, where there is maybe an assumption where you know sexual assault couldn't happen in, uh, for some people. And I saw someone who I think, you know, I would argue sort of treated sexual assault as something that couldn't happen, but sort of was engaging in sexual assault, was was sexually yeah, assaulting Jesus. people on a sex on premise venue, like multiple different people, and people who very clearly said, no, please stop, and then he would continue on. And so that, you know, that, that does happen. But that, does that mean that these spaces normalise sexual assault? And that's where I am questioning this article uh, very clearly. And, and, and the reason for me was that it felt like the underlying tone of this piece was... Uh, something that sort of said to me that uh, a a sexualized environment uh, or the existence of a sexualized environment, you know, in this case, you know, gay bars and sex on premise venues, um, automatically sort of leads to sexual assault or sort of creates this culture of sexual assault, and I, that is where I'm really having I'm really struggling with this piece. I mean, I think the I don't even necessarily have an issue with the proposition that a highly sexualized environment. If if not, I don't know, like, you know, I, I feel like any argument that says this necessarily leads to this is kind of flawed, but yeah, so are yeah. kind of counter-arguments to it. But, like, the the reality of it being that, you know, if we take the proposition that a high, the creation of highly sexualized environments in, in particularly gay male spaces has led to, not needs to, but has led to 
environments in which there is more sexual assault. I I would find it difficult to argue against that. I I think that that seems true to me. I think the the issue I have is I guess with the kind of the nature of sexual assault and kind of what that looks like mm-hmm. and and how that is experienced within these spaces is extremely complex and I think a, a lot of you know when I look at the me too movement as a whole I think that there are some very there are obviously some very necessary conversations that are happening around like consent at a really really basic level because you know let's face it men are awful uh, often like really kind of emotionally unintelligent, really shit at like reading another person's responses and knowing whether what they're doing is is okay or not. Because fundamentally to me, that's kind of what consent is is about, is, is not, you know, X, Y, Z act is automatically sexual assault, although I'm sure you can think of some examples where that's certainly the case. Yep, yep. But, but whether or not what you are doing is being received in a particular way. And when we're dealing with, you know, sexual assault and rape on the scale that we see in most societies around the world, then, you know, I, like, I I totally get that we have to start these conversations off in some way super, super basic to just go, like, men, hey, men, don't do, don't do this. Don't, like, grab someone's ass, you know, don't blah, 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 blah. Those things are, are, are not okay. But I would like to... Oh, this stuff is so hard. I would like to think that... If I just look at my own experience, for example, in gay bars and gay clubs, and this is not, like, I just desperately don't want someone to kind of say, like, take this as me extrapolating what I think is okay out to anyone else. Yeah, absolutely. It's That's more fine. just a kind of example of how I think this is complicated. I really enjoy often getting groped by strangers in gay bars. Yeah. Yep. Me too. And I... D- and I don't know what to do with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? I totally understand. And, and yeah, and I feel, I don't know, the way I was thinking about this before, like, and I think, yeah, and it's hard because obviously, you know, I, I have had that same experience uh, of, of, of enjoying that and that being part of the experience of going to a gay bar and getting, getting a, a boost out of that. And so, obviously, the challenge is how do you deal with that compared to the people who go to gay bars and don't want that to occur uh and how do you how do you negotiate that and i and i don't and i don't know what that looks like and i think that is the challenge that is being brought out in this piece and being brought out by the me too movement and i I have absolutely no idea that is the one area where i don't know i think where it becomes for me a little bit more uh, more maybe 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 more complicated or less complicated is you know there are there are things that okay. I'm going to use a sex on premise venue again as a, as a good example because with a sex on premise venue, people are going in with the intention generally to have sex. So that's the starting point there. Now that obviously doesn't mean, and, I, and I'm not going to say this. Obviously, doesn't mean that questions of consent don't exist in these spaces, and that you know just because you're going in with the intention of sex that you. Uh, that someone, you know, has the right to have sex with you or uh, has the right to yeah, of course. want to yeah. have sex, you know, to do that. And so sexual assault do occur, does occur in these places. But what I was thinking about before we started recording this today is, you know, I've been to these venues. I've been I particularly like going to, to saunas. I think, I think they're great. Uh, and 
I was thinking about how there's a whole range of social cues or cues that exist in those spaces that are often not verbal. They're often uh, physical or sort of facial, you know, cues or just, you know, the, 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 the tip of a hat, tip of a head that sort of says, come over here and, you know, things can occur. Uh, and that the kinds of activities that I would participate in there are different to what I would do if I was on the street. You know, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to be in a sex on premise venue. I'll be far more comfortable uh, going up to someone who is in a space, you know, in a place uh, sort of who gives me a tip of the head or or whatever and, and starting physical contact before without, uh, you know, asking to do totally, that. like verbally checking if it's okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. and sometimes you do that, and sometimes you do that, and you make a mistake about those cues, and someone pushes you away, or they say no, and you move on. And that is how I feel like I would engage in those spaces. And I don't consider that to be sexual assault, because I think that there is a recognition that that is part of the process, in a way, and that you can, you know put your hand on someone and they say, no, we'll push you away and you've, you've read it wrong and you move on. Now, that is yes. obviously totally different than to if I went out to the street and went out to my workplace and I saw some cute dude that I, you know, that I liked and I went and put my hand on his crotch. That is sexual assault in that space because in that space, in, the, in my workplace, I would consider that is not an acceptable social activity to be participating in. And so those, what I'm trying to get at here is how different spaces sort of lead to have different social expectations, different social cues that can make some behavior acceptable in some spaces and some behavior not acceptable in other spaces, the same behavior. And sure. so I, I think mean, that that's the I complicated like part about this. Of, yeah. I mean, I would slightly kind of complicate that like social yeah. context thing in that I feel like it's, it is about a, like, I feel like expectations about what is or isn't sexual assault is, is probably largely shaped by, um, given kind of social and physical context, but like ultimately the defining factor is how it's received. Mm, you know, mm. like yeah. So maybe so- maybe what I'm saying is that uh, in a in a sex on premise venue, those sorts of behaviours will be received differently because of the social context um, compared to if I was to do it on the street. Um, and what I'm trying to say is you can't extrapolate what is acceptable behaviour on the street to what is acceptable behaviour in some of these venues because there's a different social context. Um, yes. And yeah, that yeah, doesn't mean sure. that consent doesn't exist. You know, as I said, so, you know, the, the worst example I've ever had in one of these spaces was um, at a sauna in Sydney, actually, where there was one guy who I saw uh, multiple times. I think it was three times to three different guys um, or three different groups of guys um, sort of sort of instigate physical contact uh, then each time this other guy, w- the other guy would say no, or very clearly from my perspective, push this person away mm. or say, please, you know, no. Uh, and he would continue on and continue pushing it. And to the point where the last person who I saw this happen to, uh, sort of walked away from the guy who was doing it. Uh, and this guy followed him to the point where the guy sort of turned around and said, can you please, you know, he said something like, please fuck off, like, right, as loud as... Yeah, 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 and yeah. that was, like, very, very clearly... There was a very clearly a denial of that, um, you know, a sort of a, a rejection of that sexual contact uh, and a, a, a pursual of that that made people, not just those individuals, but made, I think, everybody in the space, because in those spaces there's just lots of people around uh, and you see what's happening 
And, you know, it made it made me feel extremely comfortable, it sort of ruined my night. And I would have ruined those guys night even worse, I think. Um, and it was clearly just sexual assault in my in my perspective, mm, because mm. it was a clear yeah, that, denial yeah. of consent. But it, you know, that I think that the initial sexual contact there is not necessarily the problem. It was the continua- continuation of it when they said, no, please stop. Yeah, um, for sure. And, and I've, you know, I've seen that kind of behavior in sex on premises venues as well. I think there, <laughs> it's funny, uh, I, I used to talk about this a bit on the podcast. I think uh, these uh, peer education groups that a former housemate of mine uh, runs uh, and still runs them. And uh, a component of those groups is like teaching like appropriate behavior in sex on premises venues. Mm-hmm. So it's just, you know, there there is kind of space in our community for us to actually be talking about this stuff. Yep. But, you know, as is always the problem with conversations about consent, any questions relating to sex in not just in our community, but I think in virtually any community are so riddled with shame and riddled with just a, a, a general kind of social stigma that, that is attached to sex, certainly in our society, that it makes it so fucking hard to talk about this stuff. Like, you know, add on top of that, like, masculinity, which which means that men, as I was saying before, are kind of often not good at reading social cues, I think, or just having basic kind of empathy uh, or emotional intelligence. There are lots of things combined to make this a more challenging uh, uh, question than other kind of... Because the idea of, like, like socialization into a culture is a thing in, like, every social space, you know, that, like, it takes a while to learn how to mm. behave in a social space, to learn how to be in a, in a new culture, whether that's a workplace or a friendship group or even, like, an online space. But that's obviously made so much harder when it comes to questions of sex. And I totally, like... I feel like in the case, this case of sex on premises venues for me is a little more clear cut because yeah, yeah, which is why I'm you, using it. <laughs> to, no, totally because you can kind of go, okay, you don't, you can just not go to sex on premises venues yeah, yeah. like that. Like I, I feel like that's a pretty reasonable response to some of that mm. stuff. And if, people if are you're you not, know, people are walking around naked. Um, people are walking around sure, with erections. Sure. People are sort of engaging in this. This is kind of- as a person with a very deep voice. I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Kind of why you're there, and totally. so that 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 changes those social dynamics. And I think, it- and it's not to say that's not to say if you don't. To be very very clear, that's not to say if you don't want to get sexually assaulted, don't go to sex on premises venues. That's not at all what I'm yeah, saying. Absolutely, it's that because you know no one should you know you should be able to be in spaces without being sexually assaulted. Yeah, that, absolutely. In my mind, and the behaviour that I was describing before was disgusting, and it shouldn't have been occurring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's more that if you are not willing to learn how to negotiate that different 
social and sexual context, probably don't go to them, you know, because that's kind of what you're getting in for. Mm. I think when it comes to gay bars, it's much trickier because gay bars serve all sorts of social functions and community functions outside of just sex in that, like, it's often, particularly when gay men are first coming out, uh, it's often really hard to connect to community. Gay bars, certainly for me, they were the first gay spaces I ever went to mm-hmm. um, and and did that by myself for a long time. And it, and often often you just want to go there to be sort of part of community or connect to community, you know, as a, as a young totally, person coming totally out, you're not going there. People, to, you know, yep. um, to be in, a, in a, sa- a space that's kind of safe from homophobia, you know, as, as well. And so... Like, how do we... The, the kind of central question for me here is, is it possible to retain elements of the sexualized nature of those spaces that I like without... Without like, condoning, like... Array. Yeah, not even, not even condoning, but just, like, creating the conditions mm. that will perhaps inevitably lead to more sexual assault. And I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. And I think it's... I think... I mean, I think... Even though I think uh, this article that we're sort of referring to and that we'll link in the show notes, I think it took a too simplified version of this, which just said, you know, this should, you know, this shouldn't be, you know, e- you know, this shouldn't be difficult. I think that it, what it does do that is good is to start that conversation about what is it that it looks like to to acknowledge that yes, you know, sometimes uh, that that you know, some, you know, that 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 sometimes a, a a group is wanted and sometimes a group isn't wanted effectively. Mm. And so, how do you negotiate those boundaries um, to recognise you know when one is unwanted and when one is wanted, and and what does that look like, and how you know what sort of what sort of things can we do to mitigate against you know, not not having these sorts of sexual assaults occurring in these spaces. And I think that that's a good starting point. I think that what I don't want this, uh, what you don't want is this to sort of, you know, and even though it's, as you said at the start, it's good to sort of start at some basic discussions of it's not okay to do these these particular things. I think we can mo- hopefully move from that conversation to have a more nuanced discussion about what it actually looks like in these spaces, what sexual assault actually looks like in these spaces, rather than just sort of a sort of blanket, you know, don't touch people kind of thing. Because, I, you know, I think that going back to a, sort of your earlier part, part of what I like about the gay community is that it, uh, or the gay, or, you know, my gay male, you know, maybe not the gay community, but my gay males circles of friends is that it is often more physically, you know, there's more physical contact, there's more touching because, but I, and I find that as part of being closer and being intimate and being able to have those sorts of relationships is a strong part of that for me. So I don't want us to sort of lose that part of our community either through having these discussions around sexual assault. So it's, it's how do we, uh, um, how do we sort of be able to maintain some of those connections of in- those intimate connections whilst also acknowledging that sexual assault is a thing that occurs it's a bad thing it has significant harm and that there's something that we need to stamp out of our community at the same time mm. I mean and I think like uh, the, the starting point for me I mean it's like I say this as if it's like a small or simple thing but it's kind of like the biggest thing is as I was saying like increasing men's empathy Mm. and increasing men's uh, emotional intelligence that, like, the only way really to 
And, you know, and that's, like, such a big project that maybe it's, like, not a kind of feasible way to approach this or even thing to suggest. But for me, the only way that you can really encourage that kind of complexity and that that kind of acknowledgement of the specificity of social contexts in sexual spaces is to, like, teach men to be better at judging that stuff, you know? Like, like, te- like giving gay men the tools to be able to figure that out on their own rather than giving them rules. Yeah, yeah. I think she, Actually, this reminds me, I had a conversation with a friend a couple of weeks ago who um, does work in the area of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Um, but uh, she was telling me about research that basically found that, so she does training around sexual assault, and particularly she's based in Southeast Asia and does it there, but she said it's relevant for places like Australia which basically says that sort of uh, programs, training programs which say, don't do it, this is bad, don't do it, and we will punish you for doing it, doesn't just doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't work for a whole range of reasons uh, quite frequently, and I think this is mostly related to heterosexual communities, but quite frequently because it, uh, it sort of reinforces uh, notions of masculinity and that uh, sort of people will, sort of uh, straight men will sort of uh, respond to that through sort of being the rebel and 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 continuing to participate in sexual assault. Uh, and the the better way to do deal with these sorts of things is to engage in this sort of cultural change, which is a longer term project, which basically is is, is what you're talking about, um, getting us to think about uh, what. Uh, sexual assault is getting us to getting people to, to think about their perceptions and have you know have more empathy but also to think about the impact that it has on other people so these sorts of like you know rules and don't do this and don't do this don't do this through research has sort of been proven not to work and that the it's the it's the broader cultural change it's the discussions within community it's the understanding the impact that your behaviors can have on other people that takes longer uh but is going to be far more effective and that's the kind of discussion I want us to be having rather than just saying you know don't grope people in gay bars because that's always sexual assault because I don't think that is a good solution for anybody in the end uh no yeah I mean I I agree but you know putting in putting entire comments. sections of the community through like cultural change programs mm. oh, like that's obviously not going to happen i mean yeah but yeah. i think i don't think it has to be through you know training programs i formal, think formal structures, what we need yeah. to be doing and and what i like about this piece and what i like about the me too movement in particular is that it's starting it's it's having that discussion and that debate so it's not it's not about going through formal trainings it's about us having a discussion on a podcast it's about us having discussion with our friends it's about thinking about these things and recognizing that it is a problem in our community and starting to think about what does it actually look like to fix that problem? And, you know, what, you know, what does it look like? Is it, is there a difference between, uh, if I'm on a dance floor floor and someone is, 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 um, sort of, you know, dancing a lot with me, is it, you know, is there a difference between group, you know, having a bit of, you know, a feel of that person compared to seeing some young person who's sitting by themselves at a bar and going up and groping them and having those sorts of discussions about the nuances around those kinds of things. I'm not saying that that's always, you know, that that's the, you know, that's the, the clear, there's clear lines between those things, but just, you know, being able to have those sorts of discussions to say that behavior you might engage with some one person might not be okay with another or that, mm. you know, those kind, you know, that we can have those nuanced discussions. And I think that we don't have to do those through formal programs. We can do those through community discussions and debates. Mm. And, and you know, the, I think there are important questions for me here as well about, like, what to do. Like, what do we do when something goes wrong? You know, mm. like, like 
how do we how do we respond when we have an experience that we decide we did like was really awful you yeah. know like how do we how do we deal with that and and i think that that's a that's a super complex question as well and i, I you know i i, I see a, a sometimes a, a trend in queer communities recently towards really uh sort of potentially legal responses to these sorts of things or or really uh like punitive yeah i don't know like I, like i'm not sure like if we decide someone has been sexual sexually assaulted is calling the cops a, a good response to that i mean i like you know i think that in a lot of my sort of particular view means that i think in a lot of cases calling the cops is is just not a good idea mm-hmm. um and you but- know i've never experienced this myself so i, I can't um i can't comment i guess you know, until it, until I hope it never does, but until it happens. But, you know, I, I suspect that in my, if I was put in that position, I don't think calling the cops would be the first thing I'd want to do. You know, I don't feel like I'd be respected. I don't feel like I would be comfortable calling them, let alone. And so going through, you know, figuring out community responses is potentially a better thing for us to be doing as a community. Uh, I mean, those those do exist. I mean, I've, I've certainly heard about almost like informal... And, and in, in Melbourne, when I was living in Melbourne, I, rem- I remember hearing... Uh, no one I really knew particularly well was involved, but um, also, actually, someone I knew well was ended up becoming involved as a sort of uh, like a, as a sort of arbitrator. Mm-hmm. But um, there was this sort of community-led response to the growing realization that someone who was involved in a particular section of the community had had been uh, had a, 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 a history of sexual assault that there that sorry of of. Um, committing sexual assault, yep, so, yep. so there were a lot of stories and incidences of this person uh, uh, treat, treating people really badly, and so a bunch of people who knew this person got together and and essentially went through a kind of essentially an informal mediation process to, I don't know, as a chance to air grievances, as a chance to kind of decide what what to do with this person, um, and it. The, I mean, I don't know. I wasn't a part of any of it, so I don't know what that actually kind of looked like in practice. But I know that there are people out there who are thinking about these things and who are actually doing these sorts of things mm-hmm. at a community level. Yeah, and I think that's a. I think that's a great response. I mean, I'm not talking about the specific because I don't know about the specific, but I think that thinking about community responses to this is a is a good way forward because it both you know has starts that conversation, but it also engages with it in a way that works towards changing people's behavior rather than just uh sort of having a punitive punishment that often you know the evidence shows doesn't actually change people's behavior in the long run you know you might punitively punish someone but then they just can go to another community space and do the same thing compared yeah, to yeah. working to change their behavior in the long run yeah and you know and or i feel like yeah i mean i i guess the other thing to say about those sorts of responses and why Another, what I can imagine is another kind of motivating factor to to want to make this simple and want to make this kind of really clear and easy is that like it's really fucking draining and hard as if if you are someone who has experienced sexual assault or or is just kind of you know finding it like these are challenging conversations mm. to have and these are challenging kind of spaces to be in when we talk about this stuff and so just sort of your emotional reserves or the community's emotional reserves are obviously going to play a part in Absolutely. the extent to which we can uh, engage in these ways with complexity. Yep, absolutely. We have a question today from a listener. James has asked, 
Do you think the Liberals should have been allowed to march in this year's Mardi Gras? This has been a, a bit of a, a point of controversy in in um, the community in in Sydney, particularly in the last couple of weeks. There was a, an article, I think, in the Star Observer, yeah, arguing I've... that they shouldn't have been allowed to march, and then a response yep. saying that they should. Yeah, and 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 it also follows sort of a protest against them at the Mardi Gras. I mean, you went to Mardi Gras this year, didn't you? I did. And yeah. Did you march? Or did you? No, no, I was in the media pit. So ah, I was excellent. Just on the sidelines. Yeah, yeah. So I went as well with some friends, and we 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 watched from the sidelines, and it was quite funny because uh, so there was a sort of protest group uh, called uh, Department of Homo Affairs that had this banner that's <laughs> uh, before that so they sort of protested. They got in. I don't know how they got in, but they got in before the Liberal float and had a um, had a banner that said "Turn back the float," and you know had these people, and it was it was very clever, and we sort of were like. Uh, as a group, we were like cheering them, and then we were like, "Oh, wait up! Is this the Liberal Party being like really obvious assholes and like really like using their awful asylum seeker policy as part of this ass? You know, as being a joke. A, as a joke." And then we sort of we had this like second of being like, "What the fuck is going on?" And then we had a realization that they were being protested against. Um, sure. But and so this is what part of what has caused this controversy as well that there was people who were protesting the Liberal Party. Um, and so, I don't know, the question is really interesting one because I think, you know, so my response is that in the context of which, uh, in which uh, there are big corporations like banks uh, who are marching in the parade, in which the police and military march in the parade, uh, I think that the Liberal Party marching makes total sense. Um, and in fact, I am in many ways just as insulted about the Liberal Party marching in the parade as I am about the Labour Party marching in the parade, because even though the Labour Party, you know, has this great support for marriage equality, they still have a policy of locking up asylum seekers, you know. Yeah, um, totally. They support offshore detention. They, I mean, they opposed uh, marriage equality for a long time, you know, all things considered. While they were marching in the parade. Um, Yes. And so... I think that the question of the Liberal Party... So, I guess this question for me, sort of what it does is open up a broader question about what the point is, what is the point of Mardi Gras and what is the, you know, what's the political perspective of something like Mardi Gras? Uh, And so, I think that that is a broader question. I think that the question of whether the Liberals, you know, if if you're going to have banks and the Labour Party and the military and the police, then the Liberals make... Having the Liberals makes total sense and that... Is, is an active choice about what you want Mardi Gras to be, and that is the choice that the Mardi Gras organisers have made, and, you know, the, the Liberal Party fit in. And at the same time, I think it was great that there was people protesting that, but I think that to, 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 to have the debate just about the Liberal Party isn't quite right. We want to have a debate about what is Mardi Gras and who's it for and what's it about, and that yeah, should open yeah. up broader questions, yeah. Yeah, I, feel, I mean, I feel similarly. I think it's hard because... I worry sometimes that that line of thinking, which I basically share, you know, like I, I sort of look at the Liberal Party and go, yeah, I mean, ANZ's got a massive float, like the Defence Force is there, the cops are there, like, you know, there are a lot of people, like pretty kind of shitty um, uh, organisations and, and people marching in, in Mardi Gras. But I worry that that line of thinking just sort of leads to a kind of nihilism where we just go, well, fuck it, you know, mm-hmm. like, I guess... I guess Mardi Gras is just this commercial thing now. It's a write-off, I suppose. You know, let's kind of not just not engage. And I, like, and I'm totally, you know, as as you said, I'm totally pro like them being protested. And and I think the 
the argument that, and not not that you were making this argument, but the argument that like, if they're not going to protest everyone who's shit, why protest anyone? Is is kind of bullshit. Yeah, yeah no, um, it definitely wasn't. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and so, so I don't know. I mean, because yeah, part of me is kind of tempted to just say like, who cares whether the Liberal Party marches in Mardi Gras or not? Like. Does it matter? I but mean, in some ways, it does really yeah, matter. It, does really it is matter. this kind yeah, of yeah. like it is this kind of decades-old community institution that people feel a lot of ownership over, that people want to be a part of. But yeah, obviously, it would be nice if the whole thing was just like completely, completely, completely different. And maybe, maybe, maybe to take a less cynical view, I think maybe at least having this discussion is a you know we you, you can't we're not going to radically overhaul Mardi Gras in the next year to say no corporations, no military, no police, no Liberal Party, um, etc. But having this discussion is a way into having a discussion about what we want Mardi Gras to be and what, you know, and challenging some of these sort of this corporate bullshit that has become part of, you know, the Mardi Gras experience. And I think that that is a good thing. And if you read What Is This Gay Community Shit by Sasha Soldatov that we read in the Queer Reading Group Sydney, you will find that the commercial uh, stuff has actually been a part of and a point of contention about Mardi Gras since the very beginning. Doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Mm. Super interesting. I would highly recommend people read it. it. It's an interesting historical document about Mardi Gras and also just to get a sense of how long our community, at least how long our community has been asking these questions. This is not new. No, no, no. I, I, yeah, it doesn't surprise me in the slightest. You know, these, these are these are age-old questions, I guess. Mm. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know. I think that, the, I think that um, you know, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's more complex than just yes or no. It's a, it's, this is a, a broader question about what is Mardi Gras and what do we want it to be. And, and I think we've had this discussion on the podcast before about what up, what's pride for? What is it even for? Uh, and, and I think that it's good that we're having this debate because I think it, I think it opens up some of these questions about what is pride, what is, what pride is for? What are these marches for? What is the political angle we're taking? What is it that we're driving for as a community? And I think that those are all things we should be debating. Mm, I agree. Oh, well, if you'd like to get in touch or make a comment like James, you can do so in multiple ways via the internet. And now our usual lengthy spiel. We have an email address, queerspodcast at gmail.com. We are at queerspodcast on Facebook and Twitter. We also have personal social media accounts that you can use to get in touch with us. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Ben C. Riley. Simon is at Simon Copland. And he's also on Facebook at Simon Copland Writer. You can also find the podcast on our brand new website, queerspodcast.com. Well, newish at this point. Newish. It still feels new. But still pretty. Yeah. Yeah. It still feels new. I still like it. So I'm still excited about it. Yeah, Um, me too. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. Just search for Queers. And please leave a review and rating uh, as that uh, helps people find us, which is really great. We want other people to be able to listen to the uh, things we're we're chatting about. Um, and a big thank you as We've always. We've got things to say, listeners. We always do. Always have things to say. Uh, and a big thank you as always to our uh, podcast network hosts, our host, our podcast network friends at Earbuds. Uh, they are really excellent. And there are some amazing um, other podcasts on the Earbuds network, which you should go and check out. Uh, and finally, as always, if you have a friend, queer or otherwise, who you think would enjoy listening to us natter on about queer things, uh, let them know about the podcast. Um, personal recommendations and word of mouth are kind of the, the best way we have to grow the audience. So that would be very much appreciated. Thanks as always for listening. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode.
Earbuds, Melbourne's podcast network. Earbudsnetwork.com.